And this morning, I want to uh, minister to you guys on what it means to be a disciple. If I can get to the front of my notes here. So I want to minister on what it means to be a disciple. You know, I've subtitled it, More Than a Seat Warmer. You know, this, unfortunately, there's a, a, a large amount of Christians in the United States that they show up on Sunday and hold down a seat so it doesn't float away, and, and then they go home and live their life like they never went. You know, and, and we want to be disciples. We want to be more than that. So uh, as we come to the Word this morning, let's go ahead and uh, bow our head and pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning, Father. We thank you that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, that we would have a revelation of you this morning, Father, that it would speak to our, to our inner man, that it would speak to our spirit, Father, and we'd begin to grow and change and mature in you, Father. Lord, I thank you that your word would touch our lives and make an impact and that we would become better Christians, better disciples based on what we hear this morning, Father. Lord, I just thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And praise God. Like I said, to be a disciple. So the word disciple, we find it used in the New Testament. And uh, the, the Greek word that's used, it always means um, to be a pupil or a student. And that's in contrast to being the master or the teacher. So being a disciple is to be a student. And in all cases that it's used, it implies not only that you're a student, but that you that you accept the views of the teacher and you adhere to them, you actually put those views into practice. So it's not just, uh, I hear it and I agree, but you do your thing, I'm going to do mine. But, you know, you're, you're invested as a disciple, then you're invested in the teacher's teaching and you actually perform those te- the, that teaching. You know, and another word that we use in the English language that's very, very similar is discipline. And we'll look at that today as we go on through. You know, they're, they're very similar words. And, and discipline means to, is training to act in accordance with the rules, drill like military disciplines. So and when they're disciplined in the military, it's not, a lot of times I think we think of discipline as punishment. But really it's just, it's being trained to act in a certain way. Military discipline means that, that they submit to us an order of command, you know, then they, they live a certain way, they do certain things. That's discipline. And then the, the second definition is an activity, exercise, or regimen that develops or improves a skill, like training. So when we discipline ourselves in something, you know, then, then you discipline yourself to do something, you get better at it, you grow at it. Now we all know the verse, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it says, Go there, this is Jesus speaking, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, there's a couple things we can take away from that verse. One is that we are to go and make disciples. We're not to make converts. You know, there's a difference between a convert and a disciple. A convert is a seat warmer. You know, they come in, they show up, and, you know, are a cultural Christian. A disciple is different. A disciple is someone who follows the teaching, doesn't just show up one day a week and, and figures that this is their, uh, their fire insurance. But by saying that we're to go out and make disciples, that means in the same token that we are to be disciples. We are to be made into disciples. So there's, a, there's two, two sides of that coin there. We're to make disciples, but we're also to be a disciple as well. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started here. Matthew four eighteen through 22, we're going to talk about the first step in becoming a disciple. 
It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are the sons of thunder. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat, their father, and followed them. You know, the first step to being a disciple is to decide to follow Jesus. That's the first thing, following Jesus. And we can take a couple things away from this verse as we look at this, because, you know, we look and, and we're like, well, we know the end of the story. We know who they're going to be. We know what's going on. And, uh, of course, they followed him. Don't they know who they were? You know, of course, they just got up and walked after him. But you know what? James and John and Simon and Andrew, they, they didn't know what was going on. They just, this guy comes up to him and says, follow me. And the interesting thing is, is, is they get up and it says here, they left the boat which was their livelihood. They left their job. I mean, these guys, in that day, fishermen made good money. That was, a, that was a decent career. But they got up and left. They just walked away from it all. They had families. We know that, that Simon, was, uh, Simon Peter was, was married. Because uh, we know that Jesus heals his, his mother-in-law later, so he was obviously married. So he got up and he left his family. He left, he left everything to follow Jesus because Jesus was a priority in his life. You know, Jesus said that, uh, that you will hate mother and father and brother and son. And, and what that means is not to really hate them, but compared to your love for Jesus, your love for everybody else should pale in comparison. So they left their boat. They left everything. It says they left their father, left their family to follow Jesus. You know, the, the, one of the greatest failures that we can have in, in preaching the gospel is, is painting too rosy a picture. You know, we go out and we, we tell people all the great things about Jesus. And it's true, Jesus does amazing things in your life. But like I've, I've said before, it's not all gumdrops and lollipops afterwards. It's, you know, there's some tough things that you're going to go through. And there's some sacrifices that have to be made. You know, Jesus made an incredible sacrifice for us. You know, and, and, and he's, what he's asking of us fails so much in comparison compared to what he gave for us. But, you know, sometimes that they're gonna, we're going to have to make sacrifices to follow Jesus. We've got to make that decision. And it is a choice that we make every single day. And it's a choice we continue on making. You know, any day these guys could have woke up a few days down the road and said, you know what, this isn't working for me, I'm, I'm heading back. And they're no longer a disciple of Jesus. They could go back to their old life. That was kind of like when uh, uh, Elisha was called by Elijah, Elijah, and and he got up and he burnt his his uh, his plow and he stuck it aside. I mean, he he burned everything. There was no going back for him. He made the decision to follow God, and that was it. And then the one thing you'll notice too is Jesus doesn't say, "Follow me." and visit on Sundays, but the rest of the week you can do whatever you want. Follow me and just show up to church on Easter and Christmas, and the rest of the time do whatever you want. You know, this is a commitment. Following Jesus is a commitment. Make no mistake, this isn't uh, something really to be taken lightly. You know, when, when you raise your hand to God and you surrender and you say, God, use me, boy, understand what you're saying before you, you say that prayer, because God will answer that one. And it, it may be a sacrifice. It'll be a commitment. Amen? Next, we go to 1 Timothy 4, 6-8. It says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And what he's talking about here is in the verses before, uh, there were some people that were 
just starting to practice strange doctrine, get into some religious stuff. They were saying you can't eat certain things. You got to do things right. You know, they're kind of at this point, they're kind of trying to integrate the Jewish religion in with Christianity when, when God had made some changes. The verses right before here, 4 through 5, it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. So Paul was saying, you know, look, you know, whatever is given by God, if you receive it with gratitude, you can, you mean, you can eat pork. It's not, gonna, it's not a big deal. You, we don't have all these rules that we used to have. So he's talking to Timothy, who we know as a pastor. Timothy was one of Paul's disciples, and he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which, which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, this uh, worldly fables fit for only old women. That's what he was talking about, was these, these teachers bringing in all these, these false teachings and kind of twisting the word of God and twisting what they had been teaching. So he's saying, be careful of that and actually teach others to watch out for that as well. But he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You know, it's sometimes getting out and reading your Bible is more than you want to do. There's mornings that I wake up and I just want to sleep in a little bit longer. There's mornings that I want to get up and, and you know, worshiping is not the thing that I want to do. So that's where discipline comes in. Having good discipline is where you, you resolve to do these things even when you don't want to. It's you're training yourself in the ways that you should live your life. And he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Train yourself in ways that you can be used by God and stuff's not going to stand in the way. You know, it's like uh, these false teachings that we're talking about. How are you to know if a teaching is false if you don't actually spend time in your word and know what the word of God says? How are we to know these things when somebody can come along and make a convincing argument, maybe use a few scriptures and twist them in certain ways, and they make a convincing argument? And if we haven't disciplined ourselves for the purpose of godliness, then we can be led astray by simple things like that. You know, it's so important that we, we spend time in the Word, we spend time in prayer, we learn to hear God's voice. So that way when stuff comes against us, we're prepared to know when it's God speaking. You know, the Bible says that uh, the sheep, my sheep, know my voice. We actually got to spend some time listening to it to, to hear someone's voice. Amen. You know, another one of those things that's kind of been twisted in, in some, some uh, church societies is this idea of money. Have you ever, ever heard that money is the root of all evil? Anybody ever heard that? Anybody know what the scripture actually says? The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Money is just a piece of paper. You know, and, and that's another one of those things that, that people will twist and turn. And, and you gotta be, if you want to be godly, you have to be dirt poor and live on the street and give everything away. That's one of those things. Fables fit only for old women. And then he goes on to say, he begins to explain using, you know, Paul is constantly using real world examples to explain spiritual truths. So he goes on to say, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. 
It doesn't say it's not for any profit. I know yesterday I was feeling that I should have had some more bodily discipline as I'm out there, it's out there trying to throw the football a little bit, and like, hey, I'll run, throw it to me. I did that once. <laughs> you run, I'll throw it to you. <laughs> but bodily discipline is of profit, amen? And I, man, I know I gotta, I'm resolving to get out there and start running again. But uh, yeah, because I, I notice a difference. I notice a difference in my life when I'm working out and when I'm not working out. I really do. And uh, the, the same is true when I, when I realize that I'm not working out spiritually as much as I should be. I begin to notice I get a little bit flabby. Amen? And that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's using these real-world examples to show how that works. But he says, But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What he's saying is here is, Body discipline is only a little profit because there comes a point when your body ain't going to be needing no more. There comes a point, all men are appointed a day to die, that, that all that working out is, is no longer going to be a benefit to you. Now, don't be mistaken, it'll be a great benefit to you until that point. So it's good to work out, it's good to be in shape. Matter of fact, you might be able to push that point out a little bit farther if you're in good shape. But godliness keeps going. It doesn't end. You know, they say you can't take stuff with you. You can't take your incredibly sculpted body with you. But <laughs> you can take the spiritual workout that you've been doing with you. Amen. And it, it, makes, it makes a difference. You know, just like when you don't work out, your muscles get weak. You can't. I remember when I was in high school, right as I got out of high school, I could bench like 350 pounds. And some years ago, I started going to the gym again. And I used to, we used to work out with, with uh, if you've seen an Olympic weight bar, an Olympic weight bar weighs 45 pounds. And then you have 45-pound plates. So if you have both of those, that's 135. And then we'd put 35-pound plates on it as well, 210 pounds. And that's what we'd work out with. I mean, that was, that was our, our work. That, that wasn't like our max. That was what we did our exercises with, and that kept us going. And uh, I went back to the, the YMCA some years ago. And I threw just the 45-pound plates on the 135. Because when I first started working out in high school, that's what I started with. And I could barely do 10 of them. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what happened? And then I looked in the mirror and said, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> but if you don't use it, it goes away. You lose it. And, uh, you know, the same thing is true in the spiritual world. So, you know, even if, you know, that's, that's why pastors or people that you look at with respect, you're like, man, they're doing great. They know everything. You know, I look at Pastor Mike that way. That guy, man, he amazes me at the amount of his knowledge. But I mean, you know, if he stopped reading his word tomorrow, if he stopped spending time in prayer tomorrow, he would lose it. He would, he would get spiritually flabby. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's resolve to discipline ourselves for godliness. Amen. Next, we find that we need to abide in Him. In John 15, 1 through 8, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, this morning, some of us stood outside and saw the real world example of this. You guys thought I was kidding when I said that I'm preaching on pruning today. Joseph was out there in my front yard this morning, and we got this, this bush that's dying, and, and that's actually where plants come to my house to die. But <laughs> Joseph, 
is trying to save him, being the good man that he is. And, and I got all these dead branches coming out of this bush, and he begins to, the dead branches he begins to break off. And the ones that are, are growing flowers, Joseph says to me, if we, if we get rid of the dead stuff, more flowers will grow. And he begins to pull off all the, all the little dead stuff and got some in his coffee, but he's a real man, so he drank it anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's out there breaking off all the dead stuff. You know, right here, and if we keep reading, it says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You know, I, I saw this happening in real life today. But now this is, this is being used spiritually to describe a spiritual truth. And Jesus goes on to say, in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, in my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You know, if a branch, if a living branch is broken off of a vine, it dies. It can't bear fruit anymore. I mean, we, 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 we can look at this stuff and understand it makes perfect sense to us because if you have a flower and it's torn from the root, or if you have a, vi- a branch and it's torn from the tree or the, or the vine itself, we know it can't grow anymore. It doesn't have any way for the nutrients to get from the soil into it. There's no way for life because in the ground, the roots pull, pull everything and provide life to those branches. And if you take that away then the branch can't live. And the same is true for us spiritually. If, if you don't stay in the vine, if you don't stay in Jesus, if you remove yourself, you will begin to die. And then he starts talking about pruning up here again. If you're alive in the branch, you might have a little bit of dead bits on you. And God will prune those. God will point those out. What are you talking about dead bits? You know, you ever have that time when uh, you'll, you'll be doing something and you, you hear that voice in the back of your head, you hear God speaking to you saying, you know, this isn't something you should be doing anymore. God's pruning you. He's taking bits of your life away, taking parts out that aren't, that aren't producing life. They're not producing fruit. And then he's talking about other here. There's Christians in here, and there's all kinds of, of uh, scholars that say that there's different things going on here. These, these dried up branches are people that aren't saved. They're people that were saved and they've turned away from God and, and they've completely died out and, and, and uh, God's breaking them off and throwing them in the fire. Other people say it's people like Judah, Judah said he was a Christian, said he was in the vine, but he really wasn't, so he was, he was dried up and dead. And probably the one that I subscribe to the most, I look at it, and, and all of them have their merits. The truth is that if you turn and walk away from God, if you remove yourself from the vine of your own choice, it's a free gift of God. You can receive it, but you're more than welcome to give it back as well. You know, you're, you're going to go to hell. But I think what's talking about here is, is not so much dying and going to hell. What he's talking about is bearing fruit. What he's talking about is, is those Christians that have just enough faith to be saved. They come and they, 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 they sit on the chair. They keep the chair warm, but they're not producing any other fruit. And the truth is, when you have a branch that's not producing any fruit, it's not good for anything. What he's talking about here is, is these ones that dry up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. 
He's not talking about sending people to hell. What he's talking about is, is they're, they're not worth, these branches aren't worth anything but breaking off and using for warmth. They're not really useful to produce fruit. They're not useful for anything. And the truth is, when we have Christians that aren't being used, that aren't being used, that aren't being useful, they, uh, we need to do something about that. We need to prune them. We need to make so that they can have life coming through them again. Amen? So what are the, what is this fruit that he's talking about? You know, when we, we produce fruit when we grow in holiness. When we become more like God, that's producing fruit. When we win others to the Lord and are being a part of that harvest, that is producing fruit. When we worship, that is fruit. When we give, that is fruit. In Galatians 5, 22-23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it says, Against such things there is no law. But those, that list of things is fruit. And the truth is, when you're alive, when you're abiding in the vine, there's fruit. If there's not, then we need to, we need to take a look at our life and say, all right, what's going on here? Why, why is there no fruit in my life? You know, because you can tell when something is alive or dead. You know, when Joseph was out there pulling stuff off, he wasn't just, you know, he didn't pull out a dice and one branch one. I mean, it wasn't by chance. You, he could look at that, that plant and say, you're alive and producing fruit, but this branch here is dead. You know, there's evidence of what's going on in our life. So let's, let's take a look at our life and, and, and make sure that we're producing fruit. And finally, we learn that we glorify God when we're producing fruit. You know, this is, this is glorifying to God that we'd bear much fruit. He wants us to live our lives like that. He wants us to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He wants us to have these things. These actually glorify Him. And in doing so, we prove to be His disciple. Moving on in 2 Timothy 1-6, 1-6-7, through 6, 1, 6 through 7, it says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given, you, given us a spirit of timidity, but a power of love and discipline. You know, uh, the laying on of hands in the, in the New Testament was done for two things. One was for bestowing the, uh, some sort of spiritual gift. You know, when, when someone needed healing, they laid hands on them and they bestowed the spiritual gift of healing. Or when people, like when we laid hands on you and you received the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues, when you lay hands on people, you're imparting a spiritual gift. It was also used to, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that to ready somebody for like a, a ministry position or, or to, to uh, you know, they prayed on them, they laid hands on them, they prayed on them and, and used it as to move them into ministry. So when I was made a pastor, the other church, they laid hands on me and they said, you're ready, you know, you're ready to go. That You find that when uh, the, the disciples went out to give uh, soup to the old ladies, they laid their hands on them and sent them. When Paul and Barnabas went out, they laid their hands on them and sent them out into the ministry. And, uh, you know, it's being used to set them apart for spiritual work. And that's what happened here. They, Paul laid hands on Timothy to set him apart as a pastor to lead this church. And he says, I remind you to kindle afresh this gift of God which is in you. You know, we, we run the risk of regressing when we don't kindle afresh the gift of God that is in us. If you're, you ever heard the expression that if you're not growing, you're dying? 
You know, there's, there's no standing still. If you're standing still, you're actually going backwards. So we have to remind ourselves to actively rekindle these gifts that God has given us, to, to work in them, to use these things. And the great news is that God gives us the ability to do it. It says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Other translations say, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And that's one thing that we need, because to continue moving forward in the grace of God, to continue doing works for the kingdom of heaven, we need to not be afraid. And thank God, he has not given us a spirit of fear so we can move forward. But also, he's given us a spirit of power and of love, which is what gives us the ability to love others and touch them and work in their life and do great things. And finally, in discipline. He gives us the ability to discipline our bodies for godliness. Amen? And another note that I want to put on this one is this. God has not given us a spirit of fear. How many of you guys watch scary movies? Any of you guys watch scary movies? Me either. And the reason I don't is I figure if God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, I'm not going to go out of my way to get my own. Amen? The next thing we need to do if we want to be a disciple is keep his commandments. In John 14 through 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now these are kind of words that will kind of cut you to the quick. It'll, because I know there's times in my life when I'm, I'm like, Lord, Lord, and then do whatever I want. Anybody ever done stuff like that? We actually live in a world full of cultural Christians who say they're say they were followers, but they, they never do what he says. You know, they, they never go to church or just go a few days a year. Oh no, we, we love Jesus, but but we don't honor his bride, which is the church. They want to look good on Sunday, but the rest of the week they go around gossiping, they they treat others poorly, they don't share their faith. You know, that's one of the, the ones that gets me the most is, oh, no, I don't, I don't tell people about Jesus because I could offend them. I don't tell people. I mean, it's like you have something that's so incredible and you're, you want them to go to hell? I mean, you prefer that so you don't offend them? It's amazing to me that people won't share their faith because they're afraid of offending somebody. It's, if you believe what you had, what you, believe, you say you have, you'd want to tell everybody because you would want them to have it. Amen. Robert Kupferschmidt, that's a great last name, huh? Was a 81-year-old 80, 80, with no flying experience. However, due to a tragic emergency, he was forced to fly an airplane. On June 17, 1998, he and his 52-year-old pilot friend, Wesley Sickle, were flying from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana. During the, pilot, during the flight, the pilot slumped over and died at the controls. The Cessna 172 single-engine plane began to nosedive, and Kupferschmid grabbed the controls. He got on the radio and pleaded for help. Nearby were two pilots who heard the call. Mount Comfort was the closest airport, and the two pilots gave Kupferschmid a steady stream of instructions of climbing, steering, and the scariest part, landing. The two experienced pilots circled the runway three times before the somewhat frantic and totally inexperienced pilot was ready to attempt the, uh, the landing. Emergency vehicles were called out and ready for what seemed like an approaching disaster. Witnesses said the plane's nose nudged the center line, bounced a few times before the tail hit the ground. The Cessna ended up in a patch of soggy grass next to the runway. Amazingly, Kumpferschmid was not injured. This pilot listened and followed the instructions as if his life depended on it, and it did. This guy was listening to what he was told, never flew an airplane in his life. 
never, I've played flight simulations on a computer that are nowhere near as complex as what flying is like in real life. And not very effectively have I done it. But this guy, he's up in an airplane and he lands a plane, never flying in his life, all because he was willing to do what he was told. What do you suppose would happen in our lives that if we did what he said, if we just listened to the instructions God gave us, what do you suppose we could accomplish that if we just listened to what he said and, and did it as earnestly as this pilot was, as if his life depended on it? Something to think about. In Matthew 10, 42, it says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. You know, as a disciple, to be a disciple of God, we're to care about others. You know, the people of this broken world shouldn't offend us. The people that live, the stuff that they do, shouldn't offend us. Now, the sin itself, we should be offended by sin. We're not okay with sin, but the people... We should love as Christ loved them. You know, when God died for them, when Christ died for them, they were all sinning. They were all broken. And God still loved them enough to send His Son. And we should be doing the same thing for them. For people of this world that are broken and lost, we should be hurting for them because they don't have what we have. They don't have life. See, this is the fruit of a disciple to be able to love people that the world thinks you shouldn't love. That's one of the fruits of being a disciple. And we've got to be careful not to fall into the trap saying that somebody else will do it. Oh, the pastor will do it. You know, we have to make sure that we are operating in these gifts that God has given us to love those around us. Amen? There's a story I was just reading on, on Facebook. Pastor Von Gerald, he's one of the pastors from New York, um, put up uh, a link to this article. And it's about a, a pastor getting ready to go. Uh, he just became pastor of this 10,000-member church. And on his first Sunday, this is what he does. It says, Pastor Jeremiah Stepik transformed himself into a homeless person and went to the 10,000-member church that he was to be introduced as the head pastor at that morning. He walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. Only three people out of the seven to 10,000 people said hello to him. He asked people for change to buy food. No one in the church gave him change. He went to the sanctuary to sit down in the front of the church and was asked by the ushers if he would please sit in the back. He greeted people to be greeted back with stares and dirty looks, and the people looked down on him and judged him. As he sat in the back of the church, he listened to the church announcements and such. When all that was done, the elders went up and were excited to introduce the new pastor of the church to the congregation. So we'd like to introduce to you Pastor Jeremiah Stepnik. And the congregation looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. The homeless man sitting in the back stood up and started walking down the aisle. The clapping stopped with all eyes on him. He walked up the altar and took the microphone from the elders who were in on this and paused for a moment, and then he recited. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed in my father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or need clothes and clothe you? When did we see sick? When did we see you sick or in prison 
or go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. After he recited this, he looked towards the congregation and told them all what he had experienced this morning. Many began to cry. Many heads were bowed in shame. And then he said, Today I see a gathering of people, not a church of Jesus Christ. The world has enough people, but not enough disciples. When will you decide to become disciples? And he dismissed the service until next week. You know, that's a story that should touch us and realize us to, to evaluate, have we ever lived like that? You know, are we reaching out to people to show them love? Amen? John thirteen thirty five says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, love is another fruit of being a disciple. We should love one another. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for this, this body. I, I see the love we have for one another. And uh, we just need to make sure we continue in that. Amen. Like I said, if, if we don't keep working that muscle, it'll grow fat and flabby. You know, all, all of our lives should exude, exude love. It should be pouring out of us continually. It should, we should, I mean, when we walk by someone, if we just get close to them, they should be like, I think you just got love on me. I mean, we should, when we walk by people, love should just be pouring out of us. And that doesn't mean giving, giving somebody everything that they want. You know, that's, that's not love. That's actually more harmful. I mean, you know that you've seen that with your own kids. If you gave your kids everything that they wanted, that's not love. But uh, what love means is, is, is showing people you care, being there for them. If they are in need, meet that need. Amen. And it says that's how they will know that we are his disciples. There's evidence of being a disciple, amen? And then we find out we need to do good and be generous. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, as disciples, our focus should be on God and not on material things. Now, and I've told you guys before, material things aren't bad. You know, like we talked said earlier, it's the love of money that's the issue, not money. Matter of fact, money is what we use in this world to do good things for the kingdom of God. You know? So... But our focus should be on God because He's the one that richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That stuff that we have is supplied by Him. And I thank God that His Word says that if we will honor Him first, you know, the stuff's going to be taken care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, the Bible says. Then Paul continues to tell Timothy to instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And by doing these things, by doing good works, to be rich in good works. You know, if you're rich in money, that means you have a lot of it. So if you're rich in good works, that means you should be doing a lot of good works, right? Amen? And then be generous and ready to share. The truth is that riches are uncertain. I mean, we've looked at, at this economy that we've lived through the last few years, and, and you know, there's plenty of people that, that put their trust in the stock market and had that that rug pulled right underneath their feet. People committing suicide, families destroyed, because their trust was in the wrong place. The truth is that even with a bad economy, if you put your trust in God, He will provide. Our economy is, does not limit what God can do in your life. Amen? And then it says, 
generous and ready to share because by doing this, you'll be storing up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, it's, it's counterintuitive to, to people that are into self-preservation that giving actually um, accrues in your account. You know, it's, it's, it seems weird that giving actually increases what we have. But the Bible says that if you get, you're storing up for yourselves treasure. Amen? And then in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, another part of being a disciple is, is, is working in the harvest. In 9, 37 through 38 in Matthew, it says, Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As a disciple, the harvest should be our concern. And the harvest that he's talking about is the men and women of this world that don't have Jesus. The Bible says that that the harvest is ripe right now. There's people out there that need what we have. They need Jesus in their lives. And you know plenty of people that need them and, and need Jesus in their life right now. So what does it say we're to do? One, it says we're to pray for workers. The workers are few. It's hard to imagine God lacking anything. But you know what God lacks? Workers. It says, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You know, we should be praying for, for men and women to get saved because when people get saved, when the harvest is brought in, then those are, if they become disciples, then they themselves become workers. You know, we should be praying that people would be going out into the streets and streets, the streets, into the streets and ministering to people. That we should be praying for people to go out and, and, and touching people's lives and praying for them and laying hands on them and, and reaching out to them. But something that's, that's, that's always struck, this is one of those prayers that you're like, Lord, please send somebody out to the harvest field. And God goes, you go. No, no, I want somebody else to go. Well, no, I'm answering your prayer. You're the answer. Go. So just be prepared for that, you know, and, and uh, I thank God that we are. We, we plan stuff to go out there and, and minister to people, and everybody here has been a part of that. And, uh, but, yeah, we're going to continue to make that our focus is to be out in the harvest because we are disciples, amen? In 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize, and thus he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul, once again, always using examples to try to illustrate this spiritual truth. One, he points out that, you know, as a disciple, you might be suffering, you might suffer some hardship. He says, go ahead and do it with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, because no soldier in active service entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life. What he's saying is, is, as a soldier, I was in the army for a while, and when I was serving, I never had to worry about food, because the army provided food. I never had to worry about clothing, because the army provided a uniform. We all wore the same one, but it was provided. I never had to worry about shelter, because the army provided shelter. And that's what he says here. The, active, the soldier in active service doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life. That's not his concern. Because the person that enlisted him is going to take care of that. What is his concern? Pleasing the one who enlisted him. You know, we shouldn't be concerned with all the stuff going on in our everyday life. What Paul is saying 
what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Where are we going to live? Because the one who enlisted us, God, the one who is inexhaustible and has no limits to what he can do for us, that's who we should be thinking about pleasing because he will take care of all that other stuff if we'll put the kingdom of heaven first. Amen? And then he says that if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Basically what he's saying is don't take the easy way out. Don't try to hide in the back. You know, compete fairly and fight if you want to win. And finally, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. You know, it's kind of like when Paul was teaching that if, if they don't work, they don't eat. You know, the truth is that uh, God's going to see your, your hard work being put in. and you'll be re- It's not like we do it to a blind eye. It's not like sometimes in the real world at an employer where we can do all this good work, but somebody else gets the credit. Or we do all that. I mean, God sees what you're doing, and he will honor you for that. And I thank God for that. And in 2 Timothy 2, 20-21, we find out that we're prepared for good work. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Previously in these verses, in 14 through 17, Paul is talking about uh, basically another group of men that are teaching wrong things. And, and 14 through 17 it says, Remind them of these things and solemnly, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent. Present yourself approved to God as workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth but avoid worldly and empty ch- chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their task will spread and their talk, I'm sorry, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So what's happening is here is, is in this large house, there's many vessels. And there's many vessels made for honor, but there's also many vessels that are, that are kind of trying to do their own thing. They're, they're twisting the word of God, and, and you know, there's some to dishonor. But what Paul's saying is if you cleanse yourself from these things, if you can get yourself away from this twisted word of God and, and spend time in, in the, the real word, where it says here in, in the verses before, accurately handling the word of truth, you can get rid of all these inaccurate handlings. It says that you will be uh, a vessel for honor. God will be able to use you prepared for every good work. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that if we would just put our focus on God, that God can use us to do great things. You know, it's, we often take a look at ourselves and think, what are my skills, what are my abilities you know, I can't do certain things. But God says that if you'll just stay away from empty and worldly chatter, if you'll stay away from, from skewed, my word skewed, but if you'll accurately handle the word of truth, then you will be a vessel of honor, sanctified. You will be useful to the master, prepared for just a couple things. No, it says you'll be prepared for every good work. The truth is that God can use you. We look through the, the Bible and we see that God using the most unlikely people. Moses was a murderer and he stuttered. God used him to lead a people. David was an adulterer, but God said he was a man after his own heart. We've got uh, the sons of thunder, James and John. I mean, they're called the sons of thunder because apparently they had a little bit of an attitude on them. They, they liked to yell a lot, but God used them. You know, there's flaws in all these people all throughout the Bible, but God was still able to use them because they were 
honored, sanctified. They were useful to the master. They were prepared for every good work. And that's resolved to be the same way, amen? In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who completes in the game, completes, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we can, we an imperishable. Amen. Praise God. I'm having some issues today, even more so than normal, I think. Therefore, in verse 26, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, everyone in a race is running. When you go out, we, I just went out to, uh, uh, with my son some time ago. We ran a 5K here in Marana, and everybody in the race was running the race. But there were some who were running to win. They were running hard. They were doing the right things. And there were some that were just out there to be there. You know, I was, I was one of those. I, I can't compete with those guys, but I'm out there running with my son. And, and we were just having a good time. But we were just there to enjoy the scenery. We were there to enjoy what was going on. And truthfully, there's, there's a lot of Christians that are like that. They, they're, they're in this race, but they're not really racing. They're not running to win. They're not running with a purpose. They're just there to kind of enjoy the ride, you know, kind of stay in somebody else's shadow, ride off their coattails. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. No, we're in this race to the end. We have a purpose. Let's run it like we're going to win it. Be serious about what you're doing for the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. You know, the, the people that competed in the games, they, these athletes, I mean, that was actually, just like today in the Olympics, that's their job. And we look at these athletes, athletes, athletes in the Olympics today, and they, they work hard. They, for four years between their, that's all they do is prepare. They discipline themselves for their sport. And, and Paul says these people are doing all that. They're putting all their focus in that for a perishable wreath. You know, people today do it for a, a gold medal. And that's it. He says, let's go ahead and, 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 and live our lives in such a way, discipline ourselves, everything for the kingdom of heaven, because we are going after an imperishable wreath. You know, we're going after a prize that will never fade away, that will never go away. And he says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. You know, Paul had a purpose for his ministry. As a disciple of Christ, he had a purpose for his ministry. Just like as disciples, we have a purpose as well. And the purpose is that, that you know, the purpose of boxing is to make contact with an enemy. I mean, how many of you go would, would think it was crazy if you went to watch a boxing match and the one guy just ran to the corner, turned his back to his appointment, his, appointment, his opponent, and started swinging at the air? I mean, it would, be, it would be ridiculous as I just sounded. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that would be crazy to have somebody boxing like that. And that's, that's what Paul's saying, that if, if you kind of take the kingdom of God all willy-nilly, you don't take it serious, and, you, and you're not operating as a disciple with a purpose, you're just swinging your arms in the air looking ridiculous. And he says, but I discipline my body. There's that word discipline again. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, when we preach to others and we teach them 
accurately the word of truth, we need to make sure that we're practicing it ourselves. You know, as a, as a pastor, as I, I'm up here preaching to you these things, I have to practice the same things, therefore I won't be disqualified. Because it's good that I'm teaching others, but I have to do the same thing as well. I don't get a free pass because I'm teaching. None of us do. And we all have areas in our life where we minister to others as we teach them, as we preach them. You know, that's a problem with a lot of the church today. We're all considered hypocrites because many people preach but don't do the same. You know, they don't practice what they preach. But let's go ahead and let's discipline our body. Let's be good disciples and do the right thing, amen? And let's live for God, everything that we have for Him. And the last verse we're going to look at today is 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. And I want to talk about the difference between tutors versus fathers. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. You know, the truth is that we can go on the internet nowadays, and we can download sermons, we can listen to Caleb and hear them preaching and, and hear the songs. We can go on the internet and learn anything we want to about the Bible. We can learn about any different doctrine. We can have, especially in this day and age, the amount of tutors that we could have is endless. You know, we, we can learn about the Bible from anywhere. And Paul says that you can have countless tutors in Christ, but you would not have many fathers. You know, the, the, your father in Christ is the one who's taking the time to disciple you. The one who's, that you're sitting underneath to learn from. That's, that's what he's talking about here. The difference between a tutor is, is going and listening to a, a podcast some preacher you've never heard, which you can get things from that. But, but the Father, your Father in Christ, is one who's going to spend time and invest in you and encourage you and strengthen you and teach you and correct you and guide you. The truth is there's a difference. Being a disciple, being discipled by somebody versus just getting your hair stuff from anywhere, there's a difference. We all need a Paul in our life. We all need someone that we look up to. I, Pastor Mike is the one who disciples me. That's who I speak to. He's my Paul. He's the one that teaches me and guides me. And we all need a Barnabas. You know, those are Barnabas are the, when, when Paul and Barnabas went out, they went out as equals. They encouraged each other. They worked alongside each other ministering. And there's men and women in my life that, that, that operate in that capacity with me where we operate as, as those walking side by side, learning together and, and, and encouraging one another. And then we all need a Timothy. And that's someone that we're discipling. You know, I've spent time with many of you in this room discipling you. And you should be doing the same with others. Whether it be your, your, your children or someone friend or someone more immature in the faith, take the time to invest in somebody's life and, and make them a disciple. Amen? And finally, he says, Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of me. Paul was saying that I am your father in Christ. Imitate me. You know, and I would say the same thing to you guys. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In areas that I don't imitate Christ, don't imitate me. But in areas that I imitate Christ, imitate me. I exhort you. And that's how discipleship works. That's how we reproduce. We, we invest our lives into others. And they're able to, to imitate us and grow and do the same things that we do. So that's what it's like. That's what it's about. Being a disciple is, is, is living for God, disciplining yourself to live for Him. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.